Finding God in Unexpected Places. This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Here's Jason Elam. Hey, everyone. This is Jason. Before we get into the episode this week, I just wanted to invite you to join the Messy Conversations group on Facebook. You know, I've always wanted a place where we can all engage together with the ideas and topics raised on the podcast. So we've started Messy Conversations as a place for the Messy Spirituality podcast community to further engage with those topics, to engage in conversations about deconstruction, reconstruction, and everything in between. For the privacy and safety of everybody involved, it's a closed group. Healthy, respectful debate is, of course, encouraged, but any name-calling, finger-pointing, accusatory, or toxic conversation gets folks bounced from the group. Hopefully, that won't ever be an issue. We really just wanted a place where you can come and tell us what's on your mind as a result of the conversations that we have here on the Messy Spirituality Podcast. You can go to facebook.com slash groups slash messy conversations with an S, it's plural, Messy Conversations, to join the conversation, and I hope to see you there. Matthew Cortman is a student at Yale University's Divinity School, pursuing a Master of Arts in Religion. He has four bachelor's degrees and is a published biblical scholar with articles put out by various outlets, including Oxford University Press. Moreover, he is the author of the explosive new book, Saying No to God, A Radical Approach to Reading the Bible Faithfully. Welcome to the Messy Spirituality Podcast, Matthew Cortman. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. I'm really excited to talk to you. When I first got ready to launch a podcast and I asked folks on social media who they most wanted to hear, your name was actually the most frequent name that came up in that initial conversation. So this has been a long time in the making, but you've got a book about to be released and I wanted to make sure folks knew about it. And so I'm excited to have you in this conversation here today. Thank you so much. It's honestly very exciting for me to be here with you and to talk about something that I'm sure is going to come as both an exciting surprise and uh, also a bit shocking to your listeners. Now, in your book, you're introducing a radical shift in the way that we not only read the Bible, but really how we interact, interact with God in general. Before we explore the theme of your book, tell us about you. Where are you from? What kind of upbringing did you have? Sure. So... I was brought up and still am a Seventh-day Adventist, which already makes me uh, from a very unusual small denomination for most American Protestants. And for those that don't know what a Seventh-day Adventist is, the simplest definition is in the name itself. So Seventh Day refers to the fact that uh, Adventists observe the Sabbath on Saturday, not church on Sunday. So their church services are on Saturday. And uh, the Adventist part refers to the advent of Christ, the second coming, the hope of a new earth. So Seventh-day Adventists are uh, Christian believers, Protestants who worship on Saturday uh, because they believe very strongly in the Ten Commandments and also are very expectant and hopeful, a little bit apocalyptic about their belief in the soon return of Jesus Christ. That's the the simplest way of knowing what are the general contours of an Adventist. So I grew up in that that milieu, and Adventism is a sort of strange background. Why I'm giving more background on that as opposed to me is because it will help to explain me. So Adventists are not evangelical, but they are consistently grouped in evangelical circles. And that's partly because when 
Adventism started in um, the 1860s onward, officially. We, as a denomination, did not hold to inerrancy as a belief structure, but we were very much dedicated to Scripture. So when fundamentalism started to rise in the 20th century, Adventists were kind of caught between two places. Uh, Liberals on one hand who were saying the Bible is human and authority is derived from the interpreter alone. And there were the individuals on the other hand who were saying inerrancy, God is the absolute authority. So a lot of Adventists at that time period did not feel comfortable going with the liberal end, and so they made more friends on the what would eventually become the, the modern evangelical end. So even though Adventists officially don't accept inerrancy, they had so much evangelical influence that they're often mistaken for it. And many of the individuals and ministers who are quite conservative in the church adhere to it, even if they don't preach about it. So when I was growing up, I grew up within this environment where inerrancy was never taught because it wasn't a church teaching, but pretty much everybody I grew up around had that assumption because the kinds of claims that they were going to make about the Bible worked on that assumption. So I grew up just picking up that this was just the natural assumption. If God says it, I believe it. The Bible is the, is a love letter. All the, So my environment growing up was very much evangelical, even though technically it wasn't evangelical. So just getting that caveat there. So growing up, I was quite conservative, quite Republican, and I pretty much uh, imagined the world as a typical, you know, evangelical does. God is going to come back radically soon, the end of the world. And I certainly hope he does. But I mean, you know, it was the idea that it could be a few months. It could be a year. The end of time is just right around the corner. And of course, along with that, I was very much into understanding the Bible as an outline for, you know, instruct basic instructions before, you know, leaving earth, like that, that whole methodology mindset, that was me. So having that in my head, and coming from that direction, I actually lost interest in the Bible. When I was a teenager, I started to get too complacent. Like I learned the talking scripts that the televangelists were saying. I figured out the exact Bible study for the end times. I read through Revelation and thought it made perfect sense. I kid you not, at at 14 or 13, I was definitely going to tell you, it makes perfect sense. It's obvious what all these things mean. So I had drunk the Kool-Aid and I was was full on board. But unfortunately, that actually made me lose all interest in the Bible. I was extremely spiritual, and that stayed the same. But I got really complacent when it came to Scripture. If Scripture's purpose was just to help me get to heaven, and I just needed to know the big tests and signs that were going to come when the Antichrist arrived, well, then I didn't really need to care if there was a random story in Exodus or Numbers that I had missed. I didn't need to worry if there was an interesting anecdote I didn't know in Chronicles. It wasn't really important because I knew the parts that were the most important. I had my own canon within a canon for what was necessary practically. 
now my relationship with God wasn't really affected by that. And I owe that to my mom because she, she herself focused primarily on ideas of love and on understanding God as relational and not doctrinal. It wasn't that she was against any of these things, but she just intuitively had a better sense of what was the important aspects. So my relationship with God was based on more of the teachings and stuff I got from my mom, whereas I had all this other junk that I was constantly filling myself with from different ministers. Now, what really did it for me is I read a book by Bart Ehrman called Misquoting Jesus. It's a favorite book among evangelicals. It probably is, you know, it's a devotional favorite. I know everyone's like, yawn, yawn, man, conservative. No, I mean, for all the people who complain that Bart Ehrman is the wrecker of people's faiths and is the enemy of the evangelical church, I owe my whole faith and excitement in the Bible to him. So it was really funny. I was graduating from high school and I was at my church's local uh, Bible bookstore and I was friends with the owner and I was in the back of the store where he kept some books that he didn't know if he should sell them because they were too controversial. So <laughs> the secret stash. Yeah. And there was there was Marvin Myers, the Nag Hammadi Library, and there was Bart Ehrman's Misquoting Jesus, both in, in hardcover. And I was, I saw both, but I was really drawn to Ehrman and his statement about who changed the Bible and why. And before this point, if you had asked me, what is a Bible scholar? I would have told you, it's that televangelist I watch on TV. He knows his Bible really well. Like I had no conception about what a scholar was in relation to the academy, a professor, nothing. I would have just thought a Bible scholar is a really good, knowledgeable preacher. And so... Reading Ehrman was the first time I found out that there was anything called biblical scholarship. And it blew me away. I think I read that book in 24 hours. And I was just, I was upset. I was excited. I was angry. I was happy. And, you know, I was not angry at anything related to God or my own faith. I was angry that ministers who should have known better, assuming that they didn't, had not informed me and others of these pertinent facts. And what excited me was the idea that Ehrman was giving that I, as a reader, actually played a, a decisive and important role in reading the Bible, that it was a team effort. There wasn't just, here's the instructions before leaving earth, now follow them. But like I had to actually figure out, one, did this text even say this instruction to begin with? And then how do I interpret that instruction? And it was, it was the freedom was just exciting because my view of the Bible was so static and stale. Suddenly it just blew up excited. So that really just launched me into a long search that has now been about 10 years now since that day occurred and has taken me to Yale Divinity School, where I, I, I that journey from that point to this point, where I'm so different and yet in many ways relationally the same. You, to understand me, you have to understand I've been through the gamut of it. And, and throughout the period of those 10 years, I've been in constant conversation, debate, and exciting uh, back and forth with countless individuals, both in my family, outside my family, in my church, outside of my church. And in each conversation, I was coming closer and closer to trying to answer the question, what is the relationship between the reader and the text of the Bible? And how does that relate to our relationship with God himself? 
And that journey is something that obviously lots of people go on to try and figure out. But that journey wasn't for me really brought to the pinnacle until I was in my undergraduate studies at La Sierra University in Riverside, California. I was in a class by my ethics professor and theology professor, uh, Maury Jackson, and he was going over what is known as Euthyphro's Dilemma, which is a story told uh, in uh, Greek literature where basically Socrates is in a debate over the question of why or not why, but what is the relationship between morality and the gods? And the dilemma is that there's two possibilities, according to the, the dilemma that Socrates gives. One is that the gods, because they were obviously polytheists, so they had lots of gods to choose from, do the gods believe uh, that something is good because it is good, so that's why they tell us to, to you know, enjoy it? Or is it good and that's why the gods like it. So the dilemma here is, is goodness something distinct from God, which God recognizes? Or is God simply the one who states it, and so it is good? Does goodness intrinsically come from whatever is said? and is Or is goodness something that is recognized and thus, in a sense, is equal and distinct? So that was shocking to me only because that same year... I had been reading in the Bible some some controversial passages that typically Christian apologists stay away from. And I remembered distinctly in my head that there were characters in the Bible who rejected something God said, and then God went with what they said, but the characters affirmed that what they said was from God. So there was this direct paradox in which I was like, wait a minute. Socrates' dilemma is missing something here. There is some element about morality and God that is neither is it distinct or is it only what God says, or else characters like Abraham and Moses couldn't do what they did in Scripture. So that ultimately ended up really kind of exciting me to want to start exploring this idea and eventually led to me writing this book. What led you to write this specific book at this specific time? It seems like books that really have an impact and a paradigm shift, they come at just the right time. So why is right now the right time for this book? I think that right now is the right time because it's honestly been the right time for a long time. In truth, the issue at the core of this book is whether or not inerrancy is in fact legitimate in its very premise. So that question has been a pertinent one for a very long time due to the fact that inerrancy has been utilized in so many negative and detrimental ways against people and against society. So the question has always, and the need for the kind of work that this book is doing has always been there. And in a certain sense, I'm only sorry it hasn't come out sooner to deal with. Because at the core of what inerrancy teaches is this premise that if God says it, it's right. Or to put another way, if God says it, I should do it. And if that premise is retained, 
then it's perfectly fine for the debates we're having to keep on going forever. And partly because of this simple fact, that if you believe in inerrancy and truly, truly accept it, there is no more room for individual logic. I mean, let's just be straight up clear about something that in these discussions does not really get broached very well on. And that is that if I believe and accept that whatever God says is right, you can try to make whatever arguments logically you want, but because logic is based in your mind and in your individuality, I'm already against it because I've given priority already to whatever I think comes from on high. So if that gets the credibility, you can try to show a contradiction in the Bible. And if I can find a way to get out of it, then I'm going to be able to say that's true because I already, through circular reasoning, believe that this is without error. You're never going to win because you're trying to debate with logic. They're trying to debate on the premise that they don't need logic and logic could lead them wrong. So from the get-go, you can't argue with logic with somebody who doesn't accept logic as the ultimate rule. So to begin, if you want to tackle inerrancy, the current debates don't work. You can try to show this and that, and all you're doing is talking to a wall. The only way you're going to really actually get to the heart of the dilemma about scripture between liberals and conservatives is to actually deal with the very premise that inerrancy gives you, which is that if God says it, that automatically means that I should believe it or should do it or should accept it. And the great part about what my book does is it is that it doesn't have to do very much at all on its own. It can just point to, in the Bible, where the Bible itself actually shows this isn't the case. And in a, you know, from the very beginning, I highlight three stories that are the primary representatives of this, which is in the Old Testament, you've got the story of Jacob wrestling at the Jabbok River in Genesis 32. You have the story of Abraham arguing with God over Sodom in Genesis 18. And you have Moses arguing with God in Exodus 32. Those stories are shocking in and of themselves, even before you go on to the other stories, which involve Jesus. Because what I'm demonstrating there, without having to do very much at all except show the biblical text, is that in each case, the human being is allowed to argue with God, to tell God no, and to have God say, yes, you're right. So in the case of Genesis 32, this is magnified to the greatest degree in the text of Scripture, where after Jacob has wrestled with God, with the man, with the angel, whatever, whoever he's wrestling with is the representative of God, that representative, whether God himself or another, tells Jacob, your name will be Israel because you have fought God and have won. And that word that is used there for fought, in the Hebrew, it means to get dirty. It, 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 the reason it gets translated wrestling is because basically it implies that you're in such a mess of a fight that you're just like slinging mud at each other. Like you're just rolling in the dirt. So you got dirty in the fight. Like it's serious. But it's also important to realize this is not like a friendly wrestling match. This isn't like, oh, you're just standing there in these paintings and just holding each other, trying to block each other. No, this is like you're punching each other. Like you are, you are violently trying to attack one another. And within this context, 
we are told that Jacob won, that Jacob gets this name Israel because he defeated God. And the shocking part is what the name means. The name Israel means those who fight God. So we have a story in which a human being resists God and wins. And his people, the people of God, are proclaimed those who are going to fight God and presumably win like Jacob. Now, this is at the very core of the identity of what the Bible says about who the people of Israel are. They are people who fight God and win. They defeat God. And there's a paradox there because it's God who gives them this as a blessing. He wants them to fight him and he wants to bless them for doing it. Now, that's in scripture right there. But when ministers look at that, they try every way they can to try and come up with an alternative means of explaining it. They either directly just misstate the story and say that uh, actually, you know, Jacob was barely holding on or something like that because it says that, you know, he was crippled. But that's not what the text says. And when you look at the other stories in the Bible, which is what my book tries to do, you find out that actually the Bible is chock full of stories in which people resist God and God rewards them for their resistance. And this is not just true in the Hebrew Bible, but it's also true in the New Testament with Jesus Christ himself. And you see this again, even with Paul and others. And so what you start to recognize is that there is this theme in scripture that runs directly contrary to the very assumption of inerrancy. The idea that if God is one way and you then are going the other way, you're wrong. And what we see actually is quite the opposite. God may go one way, but you may actually be right for going the opposite way. And God is going to bless you for having done it. So that this is just absolutely shocking as a paradigm change, simply because for people who accept inerrancy, obedience is the ultimate value. But in these biblical stories that run throughout the whole collection of scripture, disobedience is the ultimate obedience to God, what gives him the most pleasure and what provides the blessing at the end. So right from there, you can already tell, like there is a, a entirely shocking and surprising rupture here in the discussions that we've currently been having. I think you raised a great example with Jacob, and I, that was kind of the first Bible story that came to mind when I was first exposed to this uh, mindset you're presenting in your book. How do we see this play out in the life of Abraham, and how do we see it play out in the life of Jesus? Sure. I mean, there's lots of ways in which it plays out in the life of Abraham. The most direct one that's kind of exactly corollary to what we're talking about with Jacob is in Genesis 18, when God comes to Abraham and tells him, oh, I have heard bad things about Sodom, and I'm sending my two angels here to go and investigate. Abraham immediately turns to God and says, basically his phrase is, shall not the judge of the earth judge justly. And readers can really miss out on understanding this text very easily if they don't quite know all the background regarding it. So the first thing is to recognize that he is accusing God of potentially not being just. 
That is what the question implies. Are you not supposed to be just? So he's accusing God of not being just immediately after God says that he's going to investigate something, which is already kind of odd. And a lot of readers don't pick up on that. Why should Abraham be so upset after what God seems to have rationally stated. The other thing that has to be really understood is that in that ancient Near Eastern context, right, we know from other texts in the Bible that the Israelites believed that justice was the number one duty of God. If you read Psalm 82, it's a very intriguing text for lots of reasons, but one of the reasons I'm invoking it now is because Psalm 82 is one of the few texts that gives a job description of what a God does. Because in that text, God condemns the other gods for not doing their duty. And that duty that a God is supposed to do is to give justice to those who need it. So if you don't do justice, according to Psalm 82, you don't qualify to be a God and as such, you're doomed to be overthrown. Now, when Abraham turns to God and says, shall not the judge of all the earth judge justly, he is accusing God of potentially not doing justice. And by invoking that, we can also understand it as a veiled threat too, that in essence, Abraham is telling God, this is a big enough issue that if you don't talk with me about it right now, I may be forced to walk away from you. And it's really important here to keep in mind the, the story arc of Abraham. Abraham's a character who was invited by God out of his society to go and learn and walk with this new deity who was speaking to him. Abraham is not presented as having had everything just suddenly given to him, explained to him. He doesn't have a Mount Sinai moment. He's learning everything as it goes. So Abraham has no absolute you know, necessary reason to have to be stuck with this God if this God turns out not to be who he thinks it is. So in this story, this is a real turning point in which Abraham says, hold on, uh, up until now it's been good. I thought I understood, but this is a line in the sand. You better start explaining. Now, the other thing to understand about that statement is why would he be saying that, as I said before, when God simply said, I've heard about things and I'm going to go investigate? Well, the first question we have to ask is, is that even true? And most people wouldn't, I mean, obviously, what I say, most people don't think God doesn't know. So they actually already think that it's not true. <laughs> but the, the truth, right, they already accept that it's not true, even if they haven't thought through the ramifications of that. They're like, oh, he's omnipotent, he knows. But in truth, when the angels come to Lot in Sodom, they tell him, we were sent by God to destroy this place. So in the story itself, they actually reveal that God had lied. He was not investigating anything. He already had sent them away, not to investigate, but to destroy. Now, what's fascinating about that, of course, is, well, then it seems like Abraham is reacting to what God hasn't said. It seems that Abraham intuitively knows what God's actually doing to Sodom, even despite what God has told him he's doing. Now, why that's important is it puts us in an, un an un in an uncomfortable place if we think about it. Here is God potentially trying, it looks like, to deceive Abraham, and Abraham automatically knows what God is doing and calls him out on it. Now, that's one way in which you can look at it. 
But then as you keep reading that story, we get reasons to not really think that that's the case. And why we get reasons for that is because Abraham tries to proposition God. Well, what if there's, you know, 40 people here? Well, what if there's 30 people here? Well, what if and, and the more he talks, the kinder his words get. It's really fun if you read very closely. Every time he starts making excuses for why he should suggest another number, as if Abraham initially thought God wasn't going to do anything just. And then once God started to actually show that he would do those things Abraham was asking, Abraham's faith was slowly getting restored one step at a time. Now, what's fascinating here is that Abraham's idea about Sodom is essentially that God is going to uh, wipe out the city with everyone in it, or he'll save the city because of some who are in it. Those are his only two options that Abraham works with. By the time you get to the very end of the story and he's like, well, you know, what if there's just this few people and God says, you know, yeah, even if there's just that few, and then he walks away. What is kind of missed in this whole story is the fact that God actually has already told the angels without Abraham knowing to get the righteous out of the city. So there is this interesting element in the story in which Abraham has only so much he can see, but based on that, he knows to argue with God that this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong. But God has purposefully not told him what his real will and plan was, which was to make sure that those who were innocent in the story didn't suffer because of those who weren't. Now, within that context, the question becomes, well, if God already did answer and was doing the thing that Abraham wanted, why didn't he actually explain that to Abraham at the start? That's the central question. Why should God try to do a ruse with Abraham? For what purpose? And again, it comes back to what Abraham's grandson Jacob is going to experience wrestling at the Jabbok River, which is that, in a sense, God is testing. He's testing Abraham. He's testing Abraham whether or not he is going to stand up for what he believes. In the same way that when Jacob is attacked at night, God is testing whether or not Jacob is willing to fight back and resist that which seems to be evil, regardless of the fact that when daylight breaks, he can see that what he's wrestling with is God. And I mean, that's, that's another element of Jacob's story that's never dealt with. At one point, it's nighttime. He doesn't know it, who this entity is. When he does see who the entity is, he doesn't stop wrestling. He doesn't take a step back and say, oh my goodness, it's God. Your will be done. I bow before your ass. No, he keeps fighting. And that's exactly what's happening in the sense of Abraham, except Abraham from the get-go is looking at God and knows who he's dealing with. So what we get a sense of in this story, in both stories, is that God at times pushes in a way that looks wrong and looks bad, and the human is provoked to push back against God in favor of something that they believed was already true about God. In Jacob's case, Jacob believes that God is pro-life, pro his security, pro his well-being. So when he sees a God who is attacking his well-being, he pushes back in support of a God who will bless him. In Abraham's story, you have the case of Abraham who believes that God is just, 
right? And that's even, that's even assumed in his very statement when he pushes back, shall not the judge of all the, yeah, right? He's assuming that God is just, why aren't you being just seemingly now? So there is this sense in which both stories show us human beings who have a view of God as good. God comes at that human being in a way that allows them to perceive him as bad. And then it's the, 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 the central arc of the story determines whether or not the character is going to push back in defense of the good version of God against that which he sees as bad. They're going to have to say no to God in order to say yes to God. So is that the same type of situation we're seeing play out when God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? Ah, so then you come to that, right? Because so many people will talk about the fact that, yeah, that's fine and dandy that, you know, Abraham seems very, you know, assured in himself to fight God over the issue of Sodom and Lot. But how come we don't see that same kind of scenario playing out in, uh, of course, Genesis 22, that, that awful, awesome text that continues to captivate imaginations the world over? Well, what ends up happening there is really to understand that the first step we have to do is recognize the context of Abraham's situation he lives in and also to understand the anachronism we're bringing to that text. So the first step, the historical context, in Abraham's time, child sacrifice was not the abhorrent thing that we currently think it is. That's really hard to believe, but when you look back over ancient texts, you find out that even if a culture didn't necessarily practice child sacrifice, that culture knew of all the other cultures that did. And it was a widely accepted uh, possibility, even if it was not widely accepted practice, it was not unheard of to imagine that a god would want your firstborn child or your favorite child as the greatest gift that you could offer as a sacrifice. So human sacrifice, as horrible, abhorrent as it is to us today, was not an abhorrent idea in the cultural milieu that Abraham would have grown up in and been exposed to. The other thing that one has to recognize then is that we bring an anachronism from our modern age when we read that story. We think to ourselves that it's obvious that child sacrifice is horrible and that Abraham should be abhorred by this idea and that it should be absolutely terrifying to think that, you know, uh, Abraham does not seem to react negatively. When really, that's an anachronism. Historically, it makes sense why Abraham would not have reacted negatively to that. It makes total sense why he would have accepted it, because that was an acceptable practice at that time. Now, given what I've said there, what really should surprise us in that story is what so few people pay attention to. And that is that, one, Abraham has never had a Mount Sinai moment like Moses. He's never been told what God's will is in some great speech. He's never, he's never been offered 10 steps to recovery or what. He just walks every day learning new things. And up until this point in the story, there has been no mention of child sacrifice before. And I don't think that's just by chance. I think that's also important for the narrative that as a reader, you know that it hasn't been mentioned. Abraham doesn't necessarily know anything about what will become later Israelite theology about it. So Abraham is in a place where he's figuring out who God is. 
And when God says, I want you to offer your kid as a sacrifice, he goes, or you'd imagine he goes, oh, so I just learned that you're like the other gods I've heard about. You're similar to them. That would be the natural inclination for Abraham to realize, okay, you are not dissimilar in this respect from the other gods. Now, what gets shocking is when he's walking to the mountain with his son and with the servants. He stops the servants and tells them, the boy and I are going back, are going up the mountain and we will return. And what people miss in that story is the fact that he says, we will return. Now, just to get this out there, this does not refer to resurrection. As much as the author of Hebrews might have assumed it because of his time period, and as much as later Christians now would like to imagine it, at the time of Abraham, there was no concept of resurrection. That came much, much later. So we just know historically, both for the time of Abraham and the time in which Genesis was written, this concept of resurrection was not, it was not there. It was not a concept for them to draw on. So we know that's not what Abraham here is referring to, this idea that he thinks God is faithful and can bring him back. That's, that's not in his repertoire of ideas. So then that leaves us with two options, which may, most Bible commentators will, will pick from. One is to say that he's lying to the servants. But that doesn't make sense because historically, child sacrifice is not an unheard of idea. And these are slaves. They're not going to rebel against him to protect the son when, they're grown, when they've grown up the same as Abraham in an environment that allows for gods to want child sacrifice. So it doesn't even make sense that they're going to push back. So there's no reason for Abraham to lie to them. So then that leaves you with one other option. And that is that he really does mean what his words imply. And that is that he does believe that Isaac is going to come back down with him. So that means he does believe that God isn't going to actually have him kill. And you get that confirmed when he's walking up the mountain with Isaac and Isaac says, where's the sheep? He says, God will provide one. Again, this, you have the two options. One is to say he's lying to Isaac just like he maybe lied to the servants. But if in fact you've already discounted why he would lie to the servants, then you don't really have a strong reason to believe that he's lying to Isaac when the other option is much more probable, that he's honestly telling the truth. God is going to provide an alternative way. He's not going to allow this to happen. Now, that's really important because that's what should shock us as readers. There is no reason for Abraham to believe that God is going to do something like that. He has no, no message from God, no divinely ordained commandment. He's had no experiences. And yet he's come to know God's character so well that he actually believes that he knows that God would not have this happen. So when you get to the final scene, when God, uh, when the angel calls out and says, stop, Abraham, stop, what people miss on is that the very beginning of the text in Genesis 22.1 said this was a test. And most people assume that the test was that Abraham is going to, whether Abraham will obey or not. But that makes no sense because it was common practice for people to accept that a God would want a son to be sacrificed. So it, this isn't as remarkable a test as it sounds for Abraham's age. In Abraham's age, this was just kind of part of the common religious ideas. What is surprising 
is that after Abraham is told to stop and he puts down the knife, the angel says, because you have listened to my voice, you have, in fact, passed the test. And what, unfortunately, so many of us have done is that we've heard this And we've thought, oh, that's in reference to the fact that Abraham left to go kill his son. But there were two voices. There's the voice in the beginning that says, go do it. And there's the voice from the angel who says, stop. And it's that second voice, that voice from an angel, that voice not from Elohim, that voice that calls out against the religious practice of that time that Abraham listens to. He could have kept going. He could have told the angel, not even an angel of light will prevent me from what God has has told me to do, but he doesn't. He listens to the second voice. And I think, unfortunately, people have tried so hard to make this story about obedience, and and so they see it as contrary to Genesis 18's story over Sodom, when in reality, Genesis 22 is the epitome of, of what Abraham has grown from to become since Genesis 18, which is that he knows God so well that he knows that what is in fact occurring here is a test of God's character. So for every person who's ever read that story and said to themselves, oh yeah, I definitely... I definitely uh, don't like this, or I feel uncomfortable. When Richard Dawkins, in his new book, writes that this story is terribly horrific and uncomfortable, right? That is the point. And the point is that Abraham figured that out. And he didn't need God to order him to do so. He was able to figure out, based on his relationship with God, what would be contrary to God's character. And that becomes really this foundation that my book kind of is is built on focusing on. This idea that, yes, God said something, but did that something contradict what God's character is so that you would be against it? In Abraham's case, he is against the order that God said. He's telling his servants and his son, this isn't going to happen. This isn't the God I know. He is trusting his own intuition versus the direct words of God, and he's rewarded for it. In Genesis 18, God is trying to get Abraham to push back against him in one sense to see, does Abraham truly know who I am? In other words, is Abraham just going to follow whatever I tell him like a good Nazi soldier? Or is Abraham totally captivated by my character so that he's becoming a replica of me? So that if I, as God, step outside of who I am, he'll notice that he's in love with who I am and not simply what I am. That he's in love with the character and heart of God, not necessarily the power and majesty of just being a God. And I think that what we see in the naming of Jacob as Israel, those who fight God, is this whole new narrative, which is not really new, it's been there the whole time, but this narrative of God wanting a people who are willing to push back against him if it doesn't seem to agree with who God has proclaimed God's self to be. Now that is exactly the classic struggle 
that Christians today are dealing with when they read the Bible. Because on the one hand, they're reading texts like John 3.16 that say God loved the world so much. And on the other hand, they're reading texts in the Old Testament that talk about bashing babies' heads in and that God is is going to rip out the wombs of uh, the enemy nations. And, And these two ideas don't go together. And they think, oh no, what am I supposed to do? And my book is trying to kind of bring out this narrative from Scripture to say that, well, actually what you're supposed to do is be just like Jacob, be just like Abraham, say no to God, because in doing so, you're ultimately saying yes to who he truly is. That raises an interesting question, Matthew, and our our mutual friend, Bo Hoffman Esquire, uh, asked this question of you. What do we do with the portraits of Scripture that seem to indicate that God is commanding violence and even genocide, but the listeners don't challenge God? They don't push back, meaning it seems like God commands violence and the listener simply commits the violence out of their faithfulness to God. When the listener wrestles with God, they come to a deeper understanding of love. But when they simply obey what they think God is saying to them, they commit terrible atrocities and harm. Is God complicit in those atrocities? Well, I guess it really depends, if I can clarify, what what Bo's question is. Is he speaking about within the stories in the Bible, or is he speaking about listeners today who read the Bible? I think he's referring specifically to the Old Testament passages where the common belief was God ordered genocide. You referred to babies being dashed against rocks, things like that. Yeah. I think what's interesting is there is no stories in the Bible where a human disagrees with God or has a reason to disagree with God, and God gives them this thing to do that's terrible, and they end up doing it. Any time in which the Bible has a story about a human being who had a reason to disagree with God, the human wins in in every story when it has to do with God's true character. And then you have stories in which humans disagree with God in which it's not about his character. So for instance, Jonah, where in fact, in the story of Jonah, uh, Jonah, unfortunately, this story gets so badly stated by some ministers, they almost paint it like Jonah ran away because he was afraid of the Ninevites and he didn't want to go ahead and, and tell them these things because he you didn't know what they might do to him. I've heard that sermon and it's a joke of what it does to the text. Jonah's story specifically states in the midst of the book, Jonah turns to God and says, I knew that when you told me to go preach this to them, you were going to forgive them. I knew it. And I disagreed with it. And that's why I ran away. And I'm mad at you now that you did it. And what's important about that is that's one story of a number of stories in which somebody doesn't like God's loving character or graceful character, fights against it, and ends up losing. So we have these two stories within the Bible, these two modes. Either the human being sees that God's acting unlike God and wins the battle by getting God to be more like God, or a human being doesn't like who God is and tries to get God not to be like God and he loses. Now, within that spectrum, you have other stories throughout the Bible in which it simply says that God wants these things to be done and they're terrible and woe is great as God and we do those things. And In those narratives, and in respect to people who read those narratives, I think what has to be understood from the get-go, right, is that when we're reading the Bible, we are reading 
even according to the Bible writers themselves, human individuals who are reflecting on God. And in that capacity, they're interpreting God in the same way we interpret God when we're reading the text. Now, that sounds radical, but I'll give an example of where I think it comes into play really well. We have a story, a book like Joshua, which is extremely, extremely troubling to many Christians. And in that book, you have God constantly, seemingly being at fault for things that cause devastation and violence on a super large scale. Now, turn to the story of Esther. And Esther's another terrible story. I know some people are going to be like, what? What do you mean it's a terrible story? That Esther is a horrible book. And I would love to do, uh, I could, you could do so much with that. But the last two, three paragraphs of that book are genocidal. Like they're just absolutely horrific. And at the end of that story, Esther basically turns the tables and says, Let, let's have the Jews have the freedom now to kill anybody they want. It's terrifying. Um, they always leave it out of the movies because it would, it would just completely change the whole picture of Esther that everyone grows up with from Hollywood. But in that book, God's name is never mentioned. God is not said to be the reason Esther thinks to seek violence against these people. God, God is just plain not said to be explicitly in anything. Even though you know God's in this story, you can see providence working, but it's not actually explicitly said. And in fact, that bothered some people so much that in the Septuagint, they actually edited the book to add in the Greek version references to God so that the book would seem more religious. But I would argue that really Esther might be the best because it doesn't have God in there. And the reason is, in Joshua, God is everywhere, and it's always said that God was the reason that this happened and this happened. But in Esther, God's not there. The human beings are making their own decisions on their own merits for why they seek violence. Now, what if Esther is really what Joshua is? What if Joshua is just the edited version of Esther? That really what this is, is that human beings wrestled in their own sinfulness and their own problems, their own histories, their own memories of those histories, but actually they're putting God retroactively into those stories based on what they think about God. So for the author of Joshua, it makes total sense that God is bloodthirsty and would want vengeance on his enemies. But for the author of Esther, for some reason, there is a, a reticence about throwing God into the midst of all this blood and not wanting God to be held responsible for it. So that we can tend to see then in these two examples that God and his role in the Bible is very much influenced in terms in like books like these and the issues that Bo's raising are very much issues in which human beings are playing a decisive role in terms of where they see God active. Do they think that God is working with the violence or is God trying to work around the violence? And Esther and Joshua are good test examples of how the writers of the Bible tried to handle both perspectives. So given that, I think the true affirmation that my book would try to propose uh, regarding that kind of an issue is to say that God actually is not, in fact, should not be affirmed to have, in fact, done those things, right? Like, like in other words, when we see God in Scripture said to act so opposite of what God is, 
and especially what, after all, Jesus said, I, you know, I am the revelation of who God is. Taking that revelation seriously as Christians, when you can see God acting totally opposite, I think the true affirmation is you have to be like Abraham and Jacob. You have to push back against that. You have to argue with it. And it doesn't mean saying that God is now culpable. It means perhaps saying, I don't, I know God better. I know that God wouldn't have done that. So then I can recognize and affirm that I am not going to believe that God did that. I'm going to accept that this is a human being who has added in a view of God here that is not at harmony with the vision that Jesus Christ has given. And that kind of a hermeneutical perspective where, again, you are saying no to something either God said or something God did or something God has been described as doing or something God has been described as saying, you're saying no to God in order to say yes to who God really is. That's the radical approach that my subtitle is really referring to, is this idea of understanding that Scripture itself presents this pathway. And, and this is, I, I have to throw this in because you, some people will say, well, you're just drawing on the Old Testament. Well, no, this is also true with Jesus. And this is the part where up until now, if you're a progressive Christian, you can be going, yeah, 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 Jesus Christ, you know, this is absolutely, he's the foundation, he's the reason, he's the, okay. But here's the thing, this kind of method didn't stop when uh, Jesus came. Jesus did not suddenly become the new inerrancy. And in some ways, progressive Christians tend to treat Jesus as if he is the new canon within the canon. And he's just as authoritative as the inerrancy that most evangelicals want to prescribe to the whole Bible. And so some of them will simply be like, well, if Jesus said it, then that's the, that's the facts. That, that's the truth. And that's not actually how it works with Jesus either. Because you have stories in the New Testament where Jesus actually praises those who resist him. So like in the story of Mark and Matthew, you have the story of the Syrophoenician or Canaanite woman, which is a story that is constantly looked at as quite negative and for right reasons. I mean, it's, a, it's got some aspects that are very troubling to it. But the thing that is not really captured in that story is that the woman is pushing back against Jesus. And for, I mean, obviously, I suspect everyone, for the most part, knows this. But for those that don't know the story, the quick summary is that Jesus tries to hide away from the crowds in a home, and a woman whose daughter is possessed, she comes, or is sick, possessed, they're interchangeable sometimes, and she comes to Jesus and begs him to heal, but she is not an Israelite. And so God, Jesus goes ahead and says to her, well, you know, it's not fair to give to, you know, the children's food to dogs, you know. And she pushes back and says, yeah, but even the dogs can eat the crumbs. So Jesus says in response for saying this, uh, you know, your daughter is healed. That's in Mark. And Matthew, it says, great is your faith, your daughter is healed. So what is usually missed in this story is that the woman is telling Jesus he's wrong. She's outright telling him, your logic has a failure. You forgot that there are crumbs that fall, so I should still get something. This is a direct, outright resistance from the woman. And rather than being offended by it, Jesus is excited by it and says that this is an act of faith. 
right? He's not saying you believe, he's not praising her because you believe in me. He's not praising her because she has this tremendous uh, uh, patience. He's praising her for saying this. And what is it she said? She said, you're wrong. Why that is so important is it helps to explain that once again, you can see this story in the light that you see the other stories, in the sense of Jacob and Abraham and Moses. You have God, or in this case, Jesus, acting contrary to who he is in order to elicit resistance from an individual. But in each case, uh, Jesus or God only tries to create resistance in somebody who already has faith. This is like the ultimate test. Once you are committed to something, this is where you demonstrate where your commitment lies. And you see this in the same, again, with another woman in John's gospel, when the famous story at Cana with the, with the wedding and the water turned into wine, Mary comes to Jesus and says, there's no wine, I, you know, you need to do something. And Jesus says, woman, you know, my hour has not come yet. Okay, that seems pretty definitive. In terms of inerrancy, in terms of God's will, in terms of, it seems pretty clear. If, if Jesus, and in John's gospel, he's certainly the living incarnation of God. If, you know, God himself in human form tells you this is not my time, that seems like it's pretty definitive. But Mary ends up just turning around and walking over to servants and saying, yeah, do whatever he says. Well, Jesus already told you. He's not going to do it. Not his time. She doesn't listen. She ends up in faith contradicting Jesus and saying, go over there. He's going to tell you to do something. And what does Jesus do? He ends up doing it. So you can either, again, assume that Jesus is somehow acting in contradiction that, that Jesus is only doing it because of Mary. Or once again, you can see this provocateur theme here in which Jesus is actually trying to test Mary as to whether or not she knows him well enough to know that regardless of what he said, that his true character will do the thing she needs. And I think that as readers of the Bible who are interacting with this text, right, our biggest issue is to figure out what is the relationship between me and the word of God. Or, you know, or to, to be careful because of my friend Keith Giles, as he would say, um, you know, the word of God is Jesus Christ. But what is the relationship between me and the words about God that I have here in the Bible? How do I relate between things that state that this is God's will when I don't feel that it is? And the truth that scripture provides in story after story after story, ignored for far too long, is that actually God wants us to be committed to who he or you know who God really is not just the fact that it's that it is God not out of some some weirdly misplaced worship of divinity but out of a true love for what the heart of that divinity is and that difference is really the key to finding how one can have a faith like Abraham, like Jacob, like Mary, like that Syrophoenician woman, where we can truly be said to be in the light of God's grace, and yet also not feel that we have to betray our conscience in order to be reverently in worship with that God. And that is always going to be that sort of that toss and turn. How can I 
affirm, you know, John 3.16, and at the same time affirm something terrible in the book of Jeremiah? Well, you can't. And that's the point that the Bible has been pointing to. You have to make a choice. And unfortunately, with the doctrine of inerrancy as we've had it, you've been denied that choice because you've been told that you have to figure out a way to make the two work, when actually, biblically, the answer has always been, no, you have to make a choice. Are, which vision of God are you behind? Are you behind a vengeful, angry, tribal-like vision of God, or are you with Jesus Christ? And, you know, Paul said it best, you know, before, you know, we, we saw, we had darkness alone. And now, you know, we've been given this enigma, this, this vision of something we're coming to understand. Part of that means we have to really know where our heart lies in terms of scripture and in terms of God's character. And so, yeah, when people say, I have trouble that my evangelical neighbor or whoever, whatever denomination you are in or group, if you hold a view that paints God like a monster, then yeah, you definitely have to recognize that you're going to need to make a choice. Do you accept that that view is true? Or do you righteously reject that view in the same way that Abraham rejected the implications of what God might do to Sodom, that God might not be just. You have to call it out, and it's part of what true faith is. Matthew, I think you're onto something with this book, and I hope people will get a copy of it and wrestle with the ideas you present for themselves. We've been talking about it for over an hour, but I feel like we've barely scratched the surface. What is the best way for people to engage with you online after they read the book to explore these ideas further? Well, yeah, I'd recommend and, and definitely um, ask them to go to uh, www.matthewjcorpman.com and just to spell that out for people who may not know the last name. So it's M-A-T-T-H-E-W-J-K-O-R-P-M-A-N. And that's P as in Paul, because some people hear T. So basically, they can go there. They can catch me on Twitter. They can find me potentially on Facebook at least for the time being, unless this book gets too popular. But uh, I can dream. But the thing is, is that really what I hope people will do after they read this book is that they're going to start talking about it with the people who need to hear about it. I really hope more than anything that this book sparks the kinds of conversations we're not currently having. And so that when somebody comes to you and says, oh, you're just picking and choosing what you want to believe. You know, you just take this scripture, but you you forget the Bible also says this terrible thing that God did, and you have to take that into account, that this book provides that biblical foundation for somebody to be able to turn to them and say, oh, I know that it says that, and I reject it. And I reject it because that's not who God is. And that's why I accept this verse as opposed to that. And the real key here is to understand that we are trying to move beyond a conversation about, oh, God said it, to what the conversation should be is, well, what did God say? The content matters, not the identity of the one speaking it. And hopefully, that's going to be something that can be taken forward in a lot more conversations.
Very well said. Friends, once again, the book is titled Saying No to God, A Radical Approach to Reading the Bible Faithfully. You're going to want to get a copy of this one. It's a paradigm-shifting book endorsed by Peter Rollins, Brian McLaren, and others, published by Choir. It's available right now. You'll find a link where you can purchase the book in the show notes for this episode, along with links to find Matthew online. Matthew, thanks so much for joining us today. You're welcome here anytime, and I'm looking forward to the conversation this book's going to inspire. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. It's been such a pleasure. You've been listening to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and visit us online at MessySpirituality.org. You can help spread the word about the podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes and sharing links to each episode on your social media. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode.